You're listening to Solar Insiders, the fortnightly podcast that shines the light on the world's biggest energy source. Solar Insiders is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, and Sophie Voroth, the editor of One Step Off the Grid. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Nextracker, delivering the most advanced solar tracking technology and the highest performing solar assets in the country. Hello and welcome back to the Solar Insiders podcast. We're back after a five-month sabbatical. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus, The Driven. And joining me as the uh, new co-host of the Solar Insiders podcast is um, Sophie Forreth, who is the deputy editor of Renew Economy and the editor um, of One Step Off the Grid. And Sophie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, look, it's great to have you on board um, as co-host of the Solar Insiders podcast. We're going to be doing a bit of a change in format of what we did before. We're going to do a series of interviews and discuss the news of the week or fortnight, as the case may be. Um, we hope to be coming back on a fortnightly basis, but we've actually got a couple of really good interviews already piling up. So I think we're going to go weekly for the next couple of weeks, so um, just to get back into the swing of things. So um, that's going to be really good. And Sophie, um, you have interviewed first up Gabrielle Cooper. I hope I pronounced her name right. Who's an independent expert? I think it's expert. Kuiper. Kuiper. Big Kuiper. my pardon, Dutch. Gabrielle. Dutch. Dutch. Oh, well, there you go. That's always going to sound. Oh, look, we've been derailed on the first episode already. Um, Gabrielle <laughs> Kuiper. Um, now, she's um, she's an independent, well, I think we describe her as an independent energy expert, but um, she's had a lot of roles in lots of different places, Sophie. Yes, she's got a couple of decades of very impressive experience under her belt, including as an advisor to Julia Gillard um, on distributed energy resources. And she's um, been on a, you know, dozens of expert panels. She's done research with IEFA and uh, currently I think she's um, consulting with the Superpower Institute um, with uh, Ross Garneau. And, and yeah, she's... she's uh, and she's been on the Energy Security Board as that's well. That's right, yes, yes in the, yes. the original team. And she, again, was a sort of expert on DER. DER, of course, being rooftop solar battery storage and very soon electric vehicles. Sophie, let's just hop straight into the interview first up. And um, this is you talking with Gabrielle Kuiper. Hi, Gabrielle. Thank you for joining us today to talk about rooftop solar and other distributed energy resources. Thanks, Sophie. It's absolutely delightful to be here talking with you. Rooftop solar is a huge success story in Australia. Households and businesses have been investing in it many, many, many years now and have built up a huge national resource. And that is now being joined with battery storage, with electric vehicles. And we're also bringing into the picture some of the household and business loads like heating and cooling and hot water. So what I'd like to ask you, Gabrielle, is... How are we doing with all of this solar and batteries and EVs? Where are we at and how well are we integrating it into the grid? Excellent question. We're really, the big picture that people often forget is we're in the midst of a one in 200 year transformation. And if you think back right to the beginning, in all energy generation was originally local. I live just down the road from 
uh, old coal-fired power station that has got electric light company <laughs> written on the side for it. And before we had electricity, we had electric lights and they were only local for the particular suburb. And obviously then we got smaller generators that produced electricity locally. Then state government stepped in and built large coal-fired generators and gas-fired then. And then we got a big focus on all of the large-scale generation and the large-scale transmission. We created the NEM and National Electricity Market, put large-scale transmission in between the states. What's happening now with distributed energy resources is kind of back to the future. The future grid will, of course, be large-scale and small-scale, but often it's underestimated what a really significant role small-scale will play. I remember, some of the listeners will remember, when first state government South Australia talked about subsidising rooftop solar and there was a lot of criticism from people coming at it from that large-scale perspective and they were saying, well, why wouldn't you just put big solar farms out in the desert and then you can get big economies of scale? What they forgot was the original concept of co-locating generation and load. So what you have with rooftop solar is you're generating the electricity where you're using it. And of course, that means you don't use the network or you don't use the network so much. And the network costs have really become very significant. So about half of household bills generally have been electricity networks, 40% on your local poles, wires and substations, 10% on the big poles and wires, the transmission but basically half your bills. And of course, if we can get flexible load and if we can get storage behind the meter, then that will make the best use of everyone's rooftop solar. And as I always say, if we get the regulation and policy right, we can bring down the bills overall. But the really important thing there is recognising how significant all of the behind the meter and in the distribution network resources are going to be into the future yeah and how economically efficient that is um, not least because the consumers themselves are paying most of the cost yes they are and they're making these investments often as a way for them to take back control of their power of how much they spend each week each month each year so it's been seen as a very individual investment but as you mentioned it's had lots of benefits to the broader grid and driven down prices certainly during the middle of the day so why do we hear networks complaining about too much solar and why do we hear politicians occasionally say we've got too much solar and sometimes we hear even the regulator saying rooftop solar is great but at the moment there's a whole lot of it and it's all out of control is this accurate What's been fascinating the time I've been involved with distributed energy resources is just how much technical scaremongering there has been about DR, particularly rooftop solar. It's been quite fascinating. And one classic example was the issue of voltage. I mean, there are many examples, but at one stage, everyone was saying, oh, you know, all this rooftop solar is going to cause and is causing all these problems on the grid. But no one could show me any data. So when I was at Energy Security Board, talked with Kerry Schott, and we're like, let's commission some research and find out what's actually going on in the grid. And very nice and smart people at University of New South Wales did the analysis based on solar analytics data. And what they found is that there were pre-existing very high voltages 
in the grid, across the distribution networks, across the national electricity market. And how did we know they were pre-existing and not caused by solar? Well, one classic example was the really high voltages in the middle of the night when the solar wasn't generating. When the sun's not shining, as they like to say. When the sun's not shining, the voltages were very high hmm. and um, and in some cases were above where they were supposed to be and potentially causing much greater costs for consumers in the grid. Now, that was a historic legacy, both of the change from 230 to 240 volts and also from the air conditioning boom in the 90s and 2000s. So the DNSPs got used to running the voltages really high. Then rooftop solar came along and somehow became the scapegoat. And what's fantastic is that we provided the data to show it was pre-existing. And at least in Victoria, with the intervention of the Victorian government working with the DNSPs there, they're bringing down the voltages. And that, of course, means that there's a lot more capacity in those grids for people to export from their solar. So, you know, I never continues to astound me how much technical scaremongering there's been about rooftop solar. And when I give talks internationally, everyone says, oh, isn't rooftop solar going to cause these problems on the grid? And, you know, I point to all of the different cases of where there's been concerns raised and none of them have come to any sort of significant fruition. And obviously, of course, we're now seeing South Australia regularly running with 100% solar combination of rooftop and utility, but usually like two-thirds, three-quarters of that is rooftop solar. And, you know, the sky has not fallen in as a result. No, but there is this duck-shaped problem that we do have to deal with. And while there might not be some imminent disaster about to hit the grid due to rooftop solar, there are plenty of ways we can make it smarter and we can optimise it and get all of the benefits out of it. And that's something that you've looked into in recent research with AIFA. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. I'd rather see the duck curve as an opportunity rather than a threat. Um, in case anyone listening doesn't know what the duck curve means, it's all about the abundant rooftop solar causing a belly in the supply demand curve for um, electricity being imported from the grid into people's houses. And what happens is it comes up again in the evenings as the sun sets and there's less solar generation, there's a head of a duck at the 4 to 8 p.m. peak. And that's traditionally been where the wholesale markets and therefore the wholesale, the generators, the large-scale generators have made their profits. It's in that afternoon, evening peak. What I wondered was what happens when every household that can have solar has solar? What happens when we get lots of flexible load? For example, we electrify all of those gas hot water systems that are primarily in Victoria and South Australia, but also quite a lot in New South Wales. Hopefully we can make them smart and make them flexible load. We get behind the meter stationary storage, the behind the meter storage on wheels, which is electric vehicles. Um, what is that saturation DER going to look like? And fortunately, I'm not a modeler, but the very smart people at ITP Renewables have got a fantastic modeling team. And they looked at what might happen in a whole range of scenarios with saturation levels of distributed energy resources. There are two major findings. One is if you can get the batteries and the flexible storage behind the meter, 
then you can soak up the solar in the middle of the day and use it in that evening peak. And that evening peak, basically the head of the duck goes down, down, down and falls to sleep and does not exist anymore. So potentially there's up to a 92% reduction in that peak demand. So there is no evening peak and there are no wholesale peak prices and therefore there should be lower prices at it in terms of the wholesale component of people's bills. The other one is the summer network peak. This is when everyone turns on the air conditioning and there's a huge amount of demand from the grid, particularly during the heat waves that we're obviously going to have more and more of with climate change. And the research showed that the same sort of thing can happen if we have this combination of rooftop solar, flexible load and battery storage, we can reduce those summer network peaks. And as I said, distribution network, largest component traditionally of people's bills, and we should be able to reduce that if we can get this behind the meter storage into people's homes and businesses. I mentioned that 40% of people's home electricity bill is the distribution network cost. In the last decade, the total value of the regulated asset base of those distribution networks has gone from about $45 billion, which is a lot of money, Mm -hmm. to $82.6 billion. So in the last decade, while we've had falling demand from the grid and because people have been putting on rooftop solar plus their houses and businesses have got more efficient with things like LED lights, We've invested an additional $30 billion in the local poles and wires and substations. Not quite sure how that's been justified, Mm. but be that as it may, we now have very expensive local poles and wires networks, and hopefully we can reduce the amount of expenditure on that infrastructure going forward and bring down the network costs for everyone as well. Yep. And you've done a Churchill Fellowship, most focused on policy. So when we're talking about putting in these changing regulations and that kind of thing, there's a lot of levels we have to work through. There's the government, there's the regulator, there's the market operator, and then there's the networks. And then there's the installers putting the the kit in who at the moment are under pressure to configure inverters in the way that AEMO wants them to or has mandated that they should be. So that seems like a lot of levels. It seems quite complicated. Is there a way we can make it simpler and set some rules right from the top and make it less complicated? I think it's there's a lot of complexity, but I would say there's two big picture things I'd really like to see. Um, and the first came strongly out of the Churchill Fellowship. So I went across North America and Europe talking to people about the future of electricity distribution networks. And what was most clear in terms of a really positive trend from overseas is the idea that the old way of paying for the networks is we they are allowed to build stuff. So they spend capital and then they spend operating amounts and then they create this regulated asset base and we give them a regulated rate of return. And that's done every five years for every network in the country by the Australian Energy Regulator. They set how much money they get. But as we move into the 21st century with these two-way flows, with all these distributed energy resources in the network, do we really still want to be working out how much to pay the networks based on how much do they build or 
here's a fantastic idea from overseas. Do we want to be paying them for the performance of the services they provide? Mm. So, for example, um, Ofgem in the UK, they have quantitative indicators of how the networks are doing, so all the standard things about outages, but they also do qualitative indicators, for example, of how their customer service is going and the like. So I think we really need to think about what performance-based regulation might look like. Mm -hmm. So in the UK, the outcomes are not just how much they spend, but safety, environment, customer satisfaction, the connections, social obligations, and reliability. And the networks are incentivized on that basis. Yep. Of course, it would be a really big change and we need to think about it very carefully, but I really think that's the direction that we ought to be going. And in Australia, are there any DNSPs that you can say you think are headed in the right direction in particular? I mean, it's a huge old grid and we've got a few states where we've got some governments in charge. So where do you think we're uh, kicking goals? Excellent question. And I think people often talk about the distribution businesses, the DNSPs, as if they're uniform. And I think they really vary a lot around the country. Um, Really like to congratulate South Australian Power Networks. I think they have been thinking for quite some time about how do they make the most of the solar on the grid. And they've been at the forefront of implementing what's known either as dynamic operating envelopes or flexible exports, but basically a really smart way to allow for consumers to export more into the grid, Yep, which I can talk about at great length. <laughs> so South Australian Power Network's doing really well and they've got over 40% of households with solar on the grid. Uh, I really like the fact that Ausgrid are trialling real-time network pricing through Project Edith um, with Reposit amongst others. And then you've got some DNSPs at the other end of the spectrum that, like Energy Queensland, we're going to name them, for example, are not allowing people to charge their EVs from their rooftop solar and have just put in a solar cutoff for systems over 10 kilowatts that's been discussed on this podcast before. It's based on ripple control. Right. Ripple control was developed for hot water systems and implemented in Australia in the 1950s. Uh-huh. So not cutting edge. You might think that, <laughs> yeah, we've moved a little bit beyond there and we might think about some smarter ways mm. managing the distributed energy resources, the 1950s technology in 2020. Yeah. So why on earth are they not getting feedback from the industry saying this is not the right way to go? Oh, I think it's one thing to get feedback. It's another thing to listen to it. Okay. And it's the Sunshine State, so they're going to have to get their act together rather quickly. I do think the feedback we got about the EV charging in particular was that that is actually being reviewed at the moment. But we also know how long the review process can take as well in this industry. So hopefully it's nice and quick because it's absolutely crazy for people not to be able to charge their EVs from the solar that they're generating on their own roof tops. That's madness. And in terms of the technical capabilities, I know that there was a report from AMO recently saying that they sort of checked in to see how many people are really complying with the new inverter standards, which goes to what you were speaking about, the dynamic, flexible demand and helping households to avoid having their solar exports cut off. 
but also helping the grid to be able to say we've got too much solar at the moment or not enough or whatever they need to do to make it all a bit more seamless. They found that while most of the inverters being installed have the capabilities, they're not being configured in the right way still, that installers sort of, whether they're cutting corners, whether they're just not aware that they have to do that. What are your thoughts there? I mean, how urgent is it that we have all of the right kit being installed and everything configured the right way? How much pressure should industry be under to conform to the standards AMO is putting in? Absolutely, in terms of we want the kit to be installed to be compliant with the standards, and that's very important. What I think is lost in the focus on compliance, which is AEMO's obviously natural concern, is the bigger picture here, and that is getting ahead of where we need to be with planning for future distributed energy resources standards. So things like we don't have agreed interoperability standards, we don't have agreed EV charging standards. And with the government last week having announced this new net zero transition authority, Mm -hmm. um, what I personally would like to see is a specialised DR branch of that authority Ah. because it's going to be independent and it could take carriage of putting together a DR standards panel with independent DR experts, you know, kind of like the reliability panel to plan and decide on those new technical standards and really get ahead of the curve. Those standards would need to be in a subsidiary instrument under the rules. There's also associated standards. We don't, for example, now require anyone putting in an air conditioning unit to have that to be a smart air conditioning unit. And, you know, we know we're going to need more and more flexible demand. Likewise, when we electrify all our hot water systems, particularly in Victoria and South Australia, we want those to be smart so that they can we can move that flexible demand, particularly into the middle of the day when we have all that abundant solar. Um, so the net zero technical uh, transmission, no, 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 getting my T's wrong, net zero <laughs> transformation authority, I think I've got it right, uh, or transition authority. Um, anyway, it could do those things around DR standards and the rules. It can do appliance standards. Uh, it could take over the deep work that's currently in arena. It could fast track dynamic operating envelopes with the DNSPs. And there's another thing that I really like to see done and should have called out at the beginning in terms of the question about which DNSPs are furthest ahead. Yep. The one that's the furthest ahead full stop would have to be Western Power, not in the NEM. Uh-huh. But they have done this fantastic planning process of thinking about their network. And they realised like, They've got quite a distributed network, as you can imagine, going out to remote areas in WA. And they looked at it and they were like, oh, something like 60% of the kilometre length of their poles and wires service, like 2% of their customers might have those numbers wrong. And they're like, well, that's not very economic when we can put in solar and storage and, you know, potentially a little bit of diesel backup if we need it. And so they've got three different approaches to providing what we'd know as, you know, network services. In remote and regional areas, they have put in, and they're in the process of putting in standalone power systems and microgrids, and they are literally dismantling 
the poles and wires that go out to those communities and in some cases are a bushfire risk. Yep. Then they do the above ground networks in regional towns and then they do a below ground network in Perth. And that kind of forward thinking I think is just fantastic. I really like to see it applied particularly in Queensland. So people might not know, but there's currently over a half a billion dollar subsidy from southeast Queensland, Brisbane and surrounds to the rest of the state. That's how much it costs to keep those rural and regional networks up and running every year. Mm. So you can imagine if you could do the same sort of process that Worston Power has gone through, forward plan, work out where you could put in standalone power systems, microgrids, pull out the poles and wires, still leave a lot of jobs out there because those standalone power systems and the microgrids still need to be managed and maintained and all the rest, but you could substantially lower the costs for all those consumers in Queensland, for example, by doing a process like that. Absolutely. And redirect those funds to where they'll be much more useful. Indeed. The final thing, we've sort of worked our way down the pyramid to the consumer. How hard is it going to be to get consumers on board? How important is it to get consumers on board with this? As I said at the sort of start of the podcast, a lot of people have installed these assets. You know, they've switched to EVs or they've installed solar and perhaps a battery. And it's been about taking the power back, so to speak. You know, Mm. it's been about, I want more control over the amount of money I pay for power. I want to generate it from my own roof. I want not to be told how much I can use and how much it's going to cost. So is it going to be difficult getting people on board for this sort of idea of flexible exports, exporting to the grid when it's needed, being part of a bigger system for the greater good? Do you think that's going to be something we have to convince people to do? And will we need to convince them to do that? Or is that just going to be taken care of in the whole flow of the system? Well, to be super cheeky, I would suggest that Australian consumers have been far ahead of the energy market institutions and generally the DNSPs in embracing distributed energy resources and rooftop solar. Um, We have had, you know, people talked about, oh, we can't subsidise people to get rooftop solar. The thing about distributed energy resources is that consumers pay the vast majority of the cost. Yes, they might get a small subsidy, but households in Australia have spent over $15 billion on rooftop solar themselves. Um, Yes, they're benefiting through lower electricity bills, but now we're all benefiting through lower wholesale bills and we could also all benefit potentially from lower network costs. Households are going to spend tens of billions of dollars on electric vehicles going forward and also stationary batteries. So I think consumers love this new technology. They understand it gives them cheaper bills. What's the really the challenge is making sure that we can set up the policy and regulations so that everyone benefits from those private investments. And that's why... Having subsidised rooftop solar, I'd also like to see the governments think about what well, they're already doing it in some states, but I'd like to see a national approach to subsidising behind the meter batteries Yep. because the modelling shows that we will all benefit from that. There's been a reluctance in some governments to subsidise batteries as well as rooftop solar, but I think the benefits are clear. And especially if we can speed up getting electric vehicles into the country and getting electric vehicles with vehicle to grid capability and using EVs for 
feeding back into homes and then eventually feeding back into the grid. That'll be a huge boon because those vehicle batteries are six to 10 times the size of your average kind of garage wall battery. Yeah. And in fact, to give them credit, AEMO in the integrated system plan forecast sort of as one scenario out to 2050, three quarters of all storage in the national electricity market by 2050 will be behind the meter. Yeah. So they've recognised that particularly with EVs, but also with smaller batteries and other flexible load, you've got huge resources there in people's homes and businesses. It's just a matter of getting the policy and regulatory settings right to make the most of those investments by households and businesses. Absolutely. And it'll be very interesting to see what comes out of the budget because there has been some talk of subsidies for batteries, both behind the meter and bigger. So thank you so much for your time today, Gabrielle. It's been wonderful to get your expertise on these issues and to hear how promising the future is. I think, as you say, it's a matter of just getting a few things right and then heading in that direction. Fantastic talking to you, Sophie, and hope to do so again sometime soon. Wonderful. Thanks. And that was uh, Gabrielle Kuiper talking with uh, Sophie. Uh, Sophie, um, pretty interesting interview. It's um, it's really interesting to hear about distributed energy, and I guess let's just call it rooftop solar and battery storage. I mean, for some, for for much of the past decade, it has kind of been demonised. And even though that demonization is kind of dying down now and people are starting to realize the benefits, its full potential is still not really being recognized by the regulators, the policymakers, even the market operator, which I guess is uh, Gabrielle's main point. Yes. I mean, she. I think that she sort of notes that all of those parties are kind of doing lots of positive things, but there's still so much work to be done on coordinating it all. And... Um, some really firm leadership needs to come into play, um, you know, politically, but also from the regulator, from the market operator, and the DNSPs need to pull up their socks. Well, not some of them are already doing okay, as she mentioned, um, but there are some who are firmly in the naughty corner. Yes, ripple controls in Queensland, I think, was uh, mm, definitely in the naughty corner. And, definitely. Um, and, and yes, sort of a, a lack of evolution, if you like. Um, yeah, absolutely, and and I think the point that she makes she makes really well too is about the sort of the transmission lines and saying, look, it's all very well and good to have transmission lines being built around the place, but only if you're going to be using it to sort of you know to move around um, exports from wind and solar, but um, not not point no not much point having them if your only goal is to move around rooftop solar because there's going to be more efficient ways of doing that. Absolutely, and it really sort of is um, you know runs completely contrary to the whole point of rooftop solar which is about generating where you are and using the energy where you are so you know if you have an area where you know it's been hugely popular and heaps of people have installed it then it should be benefiting that area and they should be finding ways to really optimize it in that area. Now, um, the budget has just come out this week too, and that's actually got some positive news. $1 billion for energy efficiency upgrades, which I think includes sort of possibly having net zero interest loans for things like rooftop solar and other things. Um, what else have you managed to find out about it, um, Sophie? Well, yeah, the, the details about the $1 billion which the CEFC will be uh, sort of distributing and, and, and 
working out what it does. Um, there's not many details on exactly what they're going to do, but you would really hope that um, they will follow on because they have done things like that before, where they've um, had, you know, helped companies with zero upfront, zero interest loans um, for green green upgrades and that kind of thing. So this could be rolled out at a much bigger scale. Um, I did speak to Rewiring Australia's Saul Griffith today, and he said that he really hopes that it it's targeted at the middle to lower income people as well. Like, um, you know, that as he pointed out, it's there's not much point in kind of boosting access for people who already really have access to it. He's, they're people that are already finding the finance and who have the money. It needs to go to people who are wanting to do this but just can't find a way economically. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the, the budget talks about $300 million for social housing, but really the, the, the entirety, I mean, almost, almost almost all of it, I would have thought it needs to go to the lower income households because it's they who need it the most. And that's where the penetration is probably the, the smallest. Um, so, Absolutely, um, and, yeah. and where the gains are going to be the biggest, that's another point that he makes. He's, I think he says, um, he said you could really turn the $1 billion into $40 billion if you could just, you know, get it into these households where the energy performance is just rock bottom and and they're you know costing these people who can ill afford it a lot of money so it's a win-win yeah. potentially yeah, absolutely. Um, Saul Griffith, of course, was talking at the Smart Energy Conference uh, last week. Um, he was one of the keynote speakers, along with Gabrielle Kuyper um, and the Federal Energy Minister. Um, it was interesting, his speech talking about 10 million households, 100 million appliances need to be sort of built or bought, my apologies, over the next 20 years. And really, if we're going to reach 1.5 degrees or sort of do something along, along those targets, every one of those machines pretty much needs to be um, electric and no longer fossil fuel. So that's something to think about when people are replacing their cookers or doing refurbishments and things like that. And he's sort of suggesting, you know, at least get your solar in and then your battery and then maybe one car in a couple of years and then maybe sort of do those renovations or replace the cookers or whatever you need to do and sort of slowly and steadily um, use the savings that you get from one to sort of buy the other. But he does make the point that this does actually need assistance and coordination from the government, not just on the financing for the low-income households, but also in making sure that people know how to do this because I think John Judson, um, formerly from the Energy Efficiency Council and Energetics, was just pointing out he actually electrified his home uh, just recently and he found it really hard. And yeah. he's an expert in the field. Well, you see that on... Um the Facebook page, My Energy Efficient Home, which is a wealth of knowledge from, you know, its, its administrators and its members, um, people constantly talking about how difficult it is, how difficult, sorry, it is to just disconnect from the gas network and, and can be quite expensive as well and how, you know, the sort of hoops you have to sometimes jump through to do that and some people end up just um, not actually disconnecting but just... Uh, closing off the gas, or so, you know, so that they don't have to pay the disconnection fee. It, it's, it is really complicated and people aren't going to bother to do it if there isn't, you know, some really strong assistance um, behind yes. them.
Yeah, well, there's not that just that disconnection fee, which is really just about protecting the gas networks and the death spiral. Mm. Um, it's also just about coordinating, making sure that people actually have the knowledge. Um, and this goes to sort of installers and electricians as well to sort of make sure that all those things that are happening in the home can be properly constructed. Usually you're going to have to probably move from single phase to three phase and spreading them over the different phases, which John said wasn't done in his home. So really that whole coordinating factor needs to be done. Um, look, just on the matter of sort of compliance and sort of ability, it was interesting there was an AEMO report coming out um, late last month, I think it was now, talking about the rather poor percentage of installations that sort of conform properly, particularly with the new sort of inverter standards. Um, I think it said actually just about 18%, I think, were properly installed. Now, look, some of that might just be ticking the box and filling out forms and things like that, but there's obviously a lot of high percent, there's a high percentage which are just not sort of at the right settings as well. And this is actually kind of important, isn't it? It, it is. It really is. Um, you know, I think, as Gabriel said in our interview, it's not a matter of sort of if we don't get it done right now, things are going to go to hell in a handcart or anything like that. But the thing is, the vast majority of the inverters being installed now, if not all of them, have these capabilities that um, networks and in particular AEMO are asking them to have so that they can have the visibility over the systems and so that they can have some control should we have a day where it's a huge amount of solar on the grid all at once and they feel the need to sort of dial it back. Um, so it is really important, but I think, yeah, I, whether, as you say, it's people not filling out the forms correctly or whether people aren't being educated enough or or just aren't sort of seeing the importance, maybe. Um, something has to sort of change. And I think uh, SA Power Networks is going to crack down. Is that right? Oh, absolutely, yes. Well, we just saw an announcement um, also late last month with SA Power Networks sort of saying that uh, people, installers, will get three warnings now. And, uh -huh. um, even well, that's generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose. Um, but it also comes down to form filling and sort of, you know, filling out the right things and things are not done properly and that includes the installation and sort of filling mm. out forms and so that South Australia Power Networks knows that things have been properly installed, then they're actually, they, they will stop them, they won't allow them to make any more installations. Um, mm. that's, so there um, you go. Well, I suppose that's good that they're getting three warnings. I, you do feel for some installers because the paperwork um, has probably tripled in the last sort of two years, I guess, because they've had all these changes thanks to Uncle, Uncle Angus's uh, um, his review that he did of, the, of rooftop solar oh. compliance. And, you know, a lot of the changes were positive and, you know, will stop people from being dodgy, as, as Nigel always used to say. But I would say probably their paperwork is now quite hefty as it is. So... Yes. Um, Yes, it's probably difficult keeping up with all of the things that they have to fill out, but this is important. Well, it is, and particularly in places like South Australia where the rooftop solar can actually account for almost like, you know, 100% of local demand, as the, as, as the network providers actually mm. sort of said. Um, Uncle Angus, I don't think Mr. the former energy minister has ever been so affectionately referred to <laughs> on this podcast or any other podcast hosted by Renew Economy, so that's um, <laughs> probably, a nice way to, probably a nice way to finish it. Maybe, maybe it's sort of turning over a new leaf as the, uh, as the uh, Solar Insiders podcast takes new shape. Yes. Um, anyway, but look, that's enough of this week. Look, thank you very much, Sophie for joining us and doing that interview. It's a great I think we've got pleasure. 
Yeah, and um, great to have you on board. And we've got another couple of good interviews um, already in the can, as it were, and um, we'll be rolling out over the next two weeks, including with the latest news updates. So thank you very much. Um, thank you to our sponsors, uh, Pylon and Next Tracker. Um, thanks for everyone listening out there. Um, welcome back, and we hope you stick with us. And, of course, don't forget our other podcasts, the Energy Insiders, and also The Driven, which is also resumed after a little sabbatical. So uh, we're filing on all cylinders at the moment so plenty to keep you entertained while you're doing the gardening taking the kids to school washing the dishes or just lying down having a nap um, there you go okay that's it bye for now solar insiders was brought to you by pylon pylon provides easy to use solar design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing no monthly costs and no locking contracts Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Solar Insiders is also brought to you by Nextracker, delivering some of the highest-performing solar assets in the country. Like a sunflower follows the sun, Nextracker's market-leading solar solutions deliver optimal return on investment for utility solar farms in Australia. Check out their flagship NX Horizon Smart Solar Tracker, their intelligent optimization software, and the industry's most advanced terrain-following solar tracking technology, NX Horizon XTR.